Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. The scripture for today's teaching is Mark 3, 7 through 19. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed, from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of God to us. Speak to God. Amen. You guys have a seat. Uh, well, once again, happy Father's Day to, uh, to all of you. Um, I just want to say... To all of you dads, you look very handsome today. Thank you for being with us. Hey, I, I really do mean that. Um, as a, a kid that grew up in a church culture that taught me that um, God hated knees and um, that shorts were evil, um, and I was shamed for wearing shorts at church camp when it was like 115 degree Oklahoma heat. Like, I just want to say that um, I really appreciate some of you men and your shorts wearing, so thank you for that. It's a real blessing to me. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Brandon. I get to serve as one of the pastors here at the church, and uh, we're going to jump into this, uh, this Mark series today. Um, have you ever been uh, such a huge fan of an athlete that you, you watched all of their games, and uh, you cheered for them, and you said nice things about them on Twitter. Maybe you even bought their jersey, like maybe both jerseys, like maybe home and away. You were like a huge fan, and then you were absolutely crushed when they left the Thunder and went to the Warriors. Like, I don't want to name names, not naming names, but just crushed, like so crushed, you still think about it five years later, it keeps you up at night. Um, we know in this town what it feels like to have our hearts ripped out, don't we? Like, we know what that is like to feel totally betrayed, but we also know what it feels like to retaliate, right? Like, we know, like, think about all the memes, like, all of the shade that we have collectively thrown at KD over the last few years, right? Like, we know about that. Like, I'm pretty sure some of you in this room, like, you burned those jerseys, right? Like, you burned them, you danced around the flames, and no shame here. Like, that's not what this sermon is about. No shame. Um, but that is, uh, that is what it means to be a fan. That is the, that's the relationship that we're engaged in 
as fans. It's, it's transactional, right? It's like, hey, as a sports fan, like, I have some expectations for, for you um, as, as an athlete, right? Like, like, my expectation is you show up, right? Like, you win games for my favorite team, right? Like, you make me feel proud of the, the city that I, I live in, and if you do all of these things, you will have my undying loyalty. Unless you leave, then you're dead to me, and I'll give my undying loyalty to somebody who actually appreciates it, right? And that's, that's what it means to be a fan, right? That's, that's the relationship. And what we're going to see in this text today is that there's actually a really, really big difference between being a fan of Jesus right, and being an actual follower of Jesus, okay? There's, there's a difference between being a fan of Jesus and being a, a real follower or a disciple of Jesus, and the question that I want to pose from the very outset of this sermon is, which are you? Which are you? A fan or a follower? And I know that that's a, a, a hard question for us to grapple with, and sometimes we, we show up and we don't really want to deal with that, right? And, uh, and even in this moment, some of you are like, man, how hard could it be to come up with like a positive, encouraging Father's Day sermon? Like, do we really need to go here? And the reality is like, yes, this is a hard question to, to grapple with, but it's actually a really important question for us to grapple with. So what I want to do today is to look at the way that Mark, the writer of this gospel, is going to short, sort of uh, show us uh, in this passage uh, these two groups, and he's going to show us these groups side by side, and he's going to compare these groups. Uh, the, these two passages, they feel, at, fir- at first glance, they feel disconnected, right? They, they don't feel like they're tethered together in any way, but what Mark is going to do is he's going to hold them up side by side so that we have some handles for how to actually answer that question. So first, let's take a look at this group that we'll call the crowd. Mark 3.8 says, when, when the great crowd heard all that he, that's Jesus, was doing, they came to him. And Jesus told his disciples, hey, have a boat ready because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And one, one, one of the things we have to keep in mind as we read Mark's gospel, and we see this come up uh, regularly, is that when Mark talks about the crowd, he doesn't, he doesn't ever paint the, the crowd in, a, in an overly like positive or sympathetic light, right? Like in this moment, there's less of a sense of compassion towards the crowd and like, oh, I'm sure there are a lot of really good people in the crowd. And you actually coming away from that passage, you have a, a bit of a sense of danger from the crowd, right? Like, like it feels like Jesus is in a bit of trouble in this moment. Like the crowd might crush him. There, you know, it feels like this, this massive entity that's, that's about to swallow him up. It feels a little bit more like the walking dead and Jesus is, is being crushed by this zombie horde or he's lost in a mosh pit and you have this feeling of like, okay, maybe these people were cool at one point, but right now, like Jesus, you got to get out of there. This is, this is getting kind of crazy. And so this crowd shows up. Jesus is growing in popularity 
And even as he's withdrawing, he's like leaving. They can't take a hint. And people are like, hey, we're going to follow you even though you're getting on a boat. And, um, and people from all over, Jews, Gentiles, everybody is following Jesus. And Mark tells us why. And spoiler alert, it's not because they love Jesus, right? It's not because they're like really, really eager to worship him. It's not because they're ready to receive his teachings. Uh, it is not because they just want to spend time and be present with him. Mark says in verse 8, they've, they've heard all that he was doing. In verse 10, for he've healed many so that all who had diseases now pressed around him to touch him. The big takeaway here is that the crowd shows up to get from Jesus, right? They come to Jesus, and Jesus to them is kind of a means to an end, right? They're showing up, and they're going, Jesus, what do you have for us? They're, they're consumers. They're not interested in Jesus. They just want his stuff. And so they almost kill him in the process. And, and before we talk about the flip side of this coin, I want to show you a couple of things that we learn from the crowd. Two things. Number one... Not everyone who is attracted to Jesus actually follows him. Not everyone who is attracted to Jesus actually follows him. Lots of those people showed up because Jesus was popular, right? Like news about Jesus had spread, so people are showing up just because of that, right? Um, we, go to, we go to concerts to, to see our favorite bands. We go to sporting events, see our favorite athletes. Um, after my honeymoon, my wife and I stalked Matt Damon around OKC. It wasn't weird at all. Um, it was normal, totally normal, and, um, and it was fun. Um, but that's, that's the situation that, that uh, Jesus is in right here, right? Like these people are attracted to Jesus in the same way. And you have other people who are attracted to Jesus because they thought Jesus can help us. Like, we have real needs. We're sick, right? Some of these people are afflicted. Some of these people are oppressed. They have, like, they're, they're dealing with real stuff. And, like, we've heard of Jesus, and we know that he, he can actually heal people like us. And so they go to Jesus, but what do they do? They get what they wanted. They get what they needed. And then a lot of those people turned away and they left. Not everyone who's attracted to Jesus actually follows him. Second thing we see is that not everyone who speaks the name of Jesus actually follows him. So in the same way, a lot of these people, you know, they'd heard of Jesus, they knew his name, and so they're calling out to him. And, uh, and again, they're calling out, and, and it's, you know, things like, hey, Jesus, we really do need you to be a means to an end. But notice, like, where this is really explicit, notice the only ones who really get it right the, the character in the story who, who shows the most respect to Jesus, who is it? It's the demons, right? Like the demons. And they don't just stop at calling out his name. They also remind us and everybody in the crowd that he's the son of God, right? Like the demons are like the best witnesses in this story. It's weird. But, but listen to what Jesus says in Matthew's gospel. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, this is Jesus talking, I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In other words, it's possible 
It's possible to be fans of Jesus from a distance, right? To be a part of the crowd, even even using his name, knowing the lingo, right? Being a part of the crowd, maybe even doing stuff that seems like it's for him. But still, the relationship is transactional, right? It's mainly about you, right? He doesn't know you. You don't know him. You're there for what you can get out of it. You really couldn't care less about Jesus. Whether or not he's crushed, you don't care. He's not the point you are, right? That's what it means to be a fan, right? Now, this also tells us something about the next group, and it helps us to kind of transition here, and it's this, that, that to be a follower of Jesus is incredibly exclusive. And, uh, and Jesus is going to say this throughout Mark's gospel, and he's going to say this later on, that to, to really be a disciple is to do the opposite of what the crowd is doing in this moment, right? He's going to say things like, hey, to really be my follower, you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross. That's what it looks like to follow me, Right? And, uh, and so, so what this means for us is, like, we don't get to do both. We don't get to do both. This means you can't say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus on one hand, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live a life of greed that's fueled by the love of money on the other hand. This means that you don't get to say, hey, Jesus is going to be the Lord of some parts of my life or maybe even most parts of my life. But uh, I actually like the way that culture defines sexuality a little bit more. So I'm going to let Jesus be the Lord of all of this, and I'm going to let culture be the Lord of this. Like, like, you don't get to do that. You are either a fan or a follower. And so in this moment, I think it's really important for us to see there's a line drawn in the sand, right? There's not, there's not a way to sort of straddle the fence here, and we've got to deal with that right? You're either a a disciple or you're a part of the crowd, but you don't get to do both. And I realize in saying that, like I've stepped into the cultural tension and I can feel it in this room and I feel it in myself, like something that is kind of rising up in me and maybe in you that's saying like, how dare you tell me that I can't be a Christian and be true to myself? How dare you tell me that I can't be a Christian and do what I want? This is, this is something that cuts against every, every bit of individualism in our culture. Like, we cannot stomach the thought of being told no or being told, hey, it really doesn't work that way. And the funny thing is, like, we don't, we don't respond with this much, much vitriol to other truth claims, right? Like, we, we kind of accept other things, but, but for, for whatever reason, there is something uniquely controversial about the exclusivity of following Jesus. Here's what I mean. Um, when, when I was in college, uh, I had a roommate um, who was a bodybuilder, uh, he would get down to like 2% body fat and he would enter into these bodybuilder competitions. And I lived in the same house as him. And uh, it was weird. It was weird every day. Um, and uh, my, my favorite thing to do was um, I, would, I would mess with him by, um, I would eat like a pint of ice cream right in front of his face every night on purpose. I would make sure he was sitting 
in the same recliner, and I would just eat the whole thing of ice cream, mostly because I love ice cream. Um, but then I would always like offer him a bite. You know, I like to think I was preparing for this day to be a dad, like did the airplane thing. He hated that so much. And, uh, he would often threaten to fight me, which was not scary at all. He looked pretty strong, but I knew like you just spent six hours exercising and you've only eaten ice cubes today. You have no energy. I would easily win this fight. Um, so so uh, anyway, that, that, was, that was kind of like our relationship. I would tease him with ice cream, and he just hated my guts. Um, and, uh, and I thought about that story this week, and, um, and I just thought, man, you know, I'm a simple man. The, the one and only reason that, is, that was ever amusing to me is because I just know, like even I know, that being a bodybuilder and getting down to like no body fat is incongruent with ice cream consumption. Like those things don't go together. You can't really do that. And, uh, and so, um, you know, I, I had this, this thought, like it would have been interesting if he would have like given in, you know, if we would have been ice cream buddies and I would have, I would have gotten my wish and, uh, and, uh, like, like what a weird scenario that would have been if that was our relationship. And then um, what if he went to the gym and then he like told all those guys like, hey, I'm really looking forward to winning this competition. Um, I'm getting I'm getting in such great shape. I'm so cut, you know, and fit and all those things. And uh, and I mean, at some point, like, aren't all the dude bros at the gym just going to be like, hey, man, no, like this is unacceptable. You are eating either eating ice cream with that guy or you're with us trying to win a competition. You can't do both. Like, those things do not go together, right? By the way, if you're here today and you're a bodybuilder, I I really do just want to say from the bottom of my heart, like, I would love to grab ice cream with you sometime. Like, (laughs) it would be an absolute pleasure. Um, But hey, like, they're going to know, like, you can't do both. That's crazy. And listen, none of us would look at that group of people and go, like, you guys are so unloving, right? Like, how could you tell this guy that he can't both eat ice cream and be the healthiest human specimen in the world? Like, like how unloving and closed-minded could you possibly be? No, we would all look at that guy and be like, man, it's actually pretty dumb that you thought you could do that. Like, you're kind of a dumb guy. That would be our reaction. And yet, like, how crazy is it? How crazy is it that this is the way that we try to approach Jesus. Like, why do we think that following Jesus is going to be different than this? Following Jesus is not just saying, hey, I want a savior, and then indulging in whatever the culture is spoon-feeding us, right? Listen, this is what John, the apostle of love, said out of a place of love. 1 John 1.6 says that if we say we have fellowship with him, While we walk in darkness, we lie, and we don't practice the truth. Listen, following Jesus is not just saying, hey, I really want a savior. It's also us laying down our whole life, all of our desires, all of our impulses, and saying, Jesus, you get to be Lord of all of it. All of it is submitted to you, and you get to have the final word on every last bit of it. So with the rest of our time today, I want to show you this, this next group that, that Mark uh, shows us, and that's, that's this group that we're going to refer to as the called. 
And I want to show you three things we learn from, from this group in, in contrast to the crowd. First thing is this. Jesus' call is sovereign and effective. Mark 3.13. Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Right? He called, and they came. Mark makes it really clear that from the crowd, Jesus chose who he would call as disciples, right? He called them, and then all those people came, right? Like, they all did. So, listen, I, I realize that even, even saying that, and some of that language there, like, might, might stir some things up in you. And, and listen, if you want to have, like, some long conversations and debates about soteriology, uh, like, we could do that. And uh, Pastor Aaron is is back from sabbatical. Like he would love it if you reach out to him, and uh, and and you guys could set that up. But let me just give you two really really quick beautiful things uh, from that statement. One is this: this means that before the foundation of the world, God loved you and He chose you. Okay, hey, like from the Word of God, like before anything. God knew you. He loved you. He chose you. That's incredible. And the second thing is that it, that it also means that when Paul says things like, hey, you were dead in your trespasses and your sins, and, and God called to you when you were dead in your trespasses and your sins, and he made you alive in Christ, like, like what that means is that when we were dead, our dead hearts that were cold and dead in sin when Jesus called out and said, come alive, like our hearts didn't go like, eh, maybe, I'll think about it, probably not. Like when Jesus called out to your dead heart and said, come alive, like it just started to beat, like it didn't even have a choice. Jesus' call is sovereign and it is effective. The second thing we see is that Jesus' call is to him and for him. And in that order, look at verse 14. It says, he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So our first call is to be with Jesus, to enjoy communion with him, before we're ever sent out to do anything for him. Okay? Uh, so, so think about um, Jesus' interaction with Martha. You remember this story uh, where Jesus goes and visits Mary and Martha. And he, it's these two sisters, and he goes to their house, and, uh, and if you remember, he goes and he sits down, and, uh, and one of the sisters, Mary, is just sitting at his feet, and uh, she's just with Jesus, and the other sister is Martha. And, uh, and the, the gospel says that she was distracted with much serving, right? And it wasn't that she was, she was doing anything inherently sinful. It's just that she was, she was busy working for Jesus before she ever sat at his feet, before she ever just gave herself permission to just be and to sit in his presence and to spend time with him. And it leads her to this place where she's stirred up with anxiety and she comes to Jesus and she's, she's angsty and mad at her sister. And, and, and Jesus says, hey, hey, you're, you're troubled about a lot of things, but your sister, actually, she chose the better portion. 
right? Hey, some of you, you grew up this way, right? Like, like the moment you put faith in Jesus, somebody handed you a Bible and they were like, all right, you're going to need to read this and you're going to need to do everything in it, right? There's a lot of commands here. There's a lot of things you need to, you, like, you better get busy. There's also mission trips. Like, there's, there's a lot of things to do. And you've just been working ever since. Like, like, maybe nobody ever told you about rest or actual communion with Jesus or ever actually explained that a Sabbath was supposed to be fun and restful and it wasn't like a part of your job description that was supposed to be just dry duty. Like, like you've just been working and, and the, the point you're at now is that you either have to white knuckle it to follow Jesus and there's no joy in this for you, or you've just kind of thrown up your hands and you're like, man, I'll follow Jesus when it's convenient or easy, but the rest of the time, I just can't. It's too hard. We need to be reminded that we are first called to be with Jesus. We're first called to him, to remember who he is, to remember what he's done. This is one of the reasons I love the Bible, especially like if you think about um, Paul's letters, they're always like, they always follow this same rhythm and it's, and it's, and it's so cool. Like he'll start his, his letters out and like the first half of the letter is like, Hey, let me remind you about the gospel. This is who God is. This is what he's done. He really loves you, Right. And so by now, like, the church is, like, really encouraged, right? And then, like, the whole rest of the letter is, is Paul just saying, like, so because of that, because of the gospel, because of the good news, because of what God has done and who he is, like, you know, we said, like, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, and God's made you alive in Christ. So now you're probably asking yourself, like, how should I live as a person who's alive in Christ? Well, I'm going to tell you, that has some implications, Right? Like, here's what that means for your marriage. Here's how you should treat the poor in light of that. Here's what you should do with your anxiety, right? There, there are implications. But the, the place that you want to start is with, like, let's remember who God is. Like, you're invited to him first, and then there's work to do out of that. It has implications for us. So Jesus calls us to himself, and then he sends us out to a life of obedience and mission. And we're able to do those things that he sends us to do because as disciples who are first called to Jesus, when we're with him, this is, this is one of the crazy things um, about, uh, about fatherhood that I've, I've learned. Like the more that my kids are with me, the more they the more they talk like me, the more they're, and this is scary in some ways, but the more they, they look like me and they, do the, they love the things that I love, they enjoy what I enjoy, and the same is true for us. The more that we're with Jesus, the more that we become like him, the more that we do the things that he did, that is what being a disciple is. That's what we're called into. And then lastly, Jesus' call is exclusive and inclusive. Look at verse 16. Jesus appointed the 12. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. 
So Jesus' call, we, we just talked about this, but it's exclusive, right? It's only through Jesus. It's all about Jesus. But look at how inclusive it is at the very same time. Like, these disciples are so weird. Like, this is a weird bunch, right? And I don't just mean weird in the sense that this is not like your, your typical religious people. Um, but these, these men would not have been caught dead in the same crowd at all, Right? A lot of these guys would have hated each other, right? They, they didn't just have small differences. They had big differences. A lot of them would have absolutely hated each other. Let me give you one example. Um, a few weeks ago, we talked about Matthew and the fact that he was a tax collector. And what that meant is that he regularly uh, betrayed his, his own people, the Jews, right? And he capitulated to uh, the Roman Empire, Right, So he had turned his back on his people, and now he was buds with the enemy. And uh, so already, if you're Matthew, you're kind of in a weird place with everybody else. But then consider this guy, Simon the Zealot. Right, He put the zealot in his name because he wants you to know, like, hey, this is pretty much the main thing about me. So you've got to figure out what that means. Like, If you were like me, you grew up in church, and you're like, I think that means he's just really zealous for the Lord. But actually, what we know is that zealots in the first century... Uh, the zealots were a Jewish political movement who rebelled against the Roman Empire and anyone, including Jews, who stood with the Roman Empire. Uh, in fact, there was, a, there was a subgroup of the zealots called the Sicarii, which meant dagger men, dagger men. And what they would do is they would slip into crowds with daggers And they would kill Roman soldiers and anyone who stood with the Roman soldiers and opposed their cries for war against Rome. So probably these guys were just best friends, right? No. Like, like these guys could not have had less in common. And and yet, with every reason to be enemies, Jesus comes and brings them together into spiritual family. And this is what Jesus does. He takes people who are weird and different and quirky and with even even deeper differences, differences in political ideologies and backgrounds. And, And Jesus completely reorients everything so that the thing at the center of your life is no longer your sexual identity or your career or your political party, but the thing at the center of your reality is Jesus. And then everything else gets to fall in line around him and submit and bow the knee to Jesus. And then think about what Jesus accomplishes through this really weird group of disciples. Our our Bibles are full of the stories, but the most amazing thing that's that could quickly just fly over our heads is that Jesus in this moment calls 12 and every Jew in Israel would have known like this is significant what's happening here, right? There had been 12 tribes of Israel and in this moment uh, there were only two because centuries earlier the Assyrians had invaded and carried off 10 of those tribes and yet for years The people of God had heard the voices of the prophets who were saying, hey, wait, there's coming a day. God is going to bring restoration to his people. Restoration is coming. Wait. 
Like God is going to take all that's been shattered and broken and everything that's gone wrong, and God is going to make things right again. He's bringing restoration. And so the Jews in this moment would have, would have paid attention and known, hey, hey, this is what we're waiting for, right? We're waiting for restoration. N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, so when Jesus called 12 of his followers apart from the crowds and gave them special status and a special commission, nobody who heard it can miss what he was doing. He was saying more clearly than any words could have done, this isn't simply a great healing mission. This isn't even simply a time of spiritual renewal. This is the restoration we have all been waiting for. So friends, again, I want to ask this question in closing. Some of you today, you're part of the crowd And I want to just ask you, like, are you really content with being a fan of Jesus? With maybe seeing Jesus from a distance, watching him pass by, maybe even calling out whenever you need something? Because today, the offer on the table is complete restoration, right? It's not just healing in this moment. It's not just Jesus meeting whatever need that you think you have here and now. It's complete. It's complete restoration. Scripture says there's coming a day when he will make all things new. When he will wipe away every tear from every eye. Like he's, he's seen it all. He knows every tear that you've cried. And he's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. There will be no more death, no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain anymore. Now, it's exclusive. It's only offered to his followers, but it's totally inclusive. And that means that today, if you're a fan and you want to be a follower, you can. And if you're even like, man, I I think I want to be, like, man, that is evidence that, that Jesus is actually calling you out from the crowd today. So the invitation to you is to come to Jesus today. So friends, I want to invite you to stand with me.